1: I'm Brian Lehrer. This is my daily politics podcast. It's Friday, December 22nd. It's quite a time to be Masha Gessen. Just this month, Vladimir Putin put the New Yorker staff writer and author of 11 books on his wanted list, criminal charges against Masha Gessen for allegedly spreading false information about the Russian military. And then in a bizarre irony, an award ceremony honoring Gessen for their political thought was canceled in Germany because of their political thought. It was the Hannah Arendt Prize for political thought, given out each year by a foundation in Germany associated with the Green Party there. Arendt having been a scholar of totalitarianism in her day, something Gessen is today in theirs. Both Jewish, both have had victims of the Nazis in their families. Gessen's family also left the former Soviet Union in 1981, if I have my dates right, when Masha was 14. But something Gessen wrote in The New Yorker, critical of Germany's relationship to free speech about the war in Gaza and conditions in Gaza caused the ceremony to be canceled. The award was made nonetheless in a different setting, we should say. Gessen has been on this show many times over the last decade, as some of you know, usually to speak about their writings on Putin and Trump and totalitarianism. Today to speak about Putin and Trump and totalitarianism, but also about Gaza and what Masha calls memory culture in Germany. Masha, always good to have you. Welcome back to WNYC.
0: Great to be with you, Brian.
1: Your New Yorker article actually begins with your description of visiting Germany often after the fall of the Berlin Wall and maybe even before in the 80s. And you found it exhilarating to watch memory culture take shape. So can you start by defining what you mean by the term memory culture and why you first found it exhilarating?
0: It's actually, the term memory culture is, is a German term. And it's something that uh, post-Berlin Wall Germany, the post-unification Germany, really put a lot of effort into cultivating. It's, it's, one of, it's, it's really the cornerstone of national identity in this Post 1989 Germany, and it has to do with reckoning with the Holocaust. And the reason I found it exhilarating was because, you know, in this, uh, in the late 20th century, I think many of us hoped that these post-totalitarian countries would figure out ways to deal with the darkness in their past and to make "never again" uh, not just a slogan but but a political reality. Uh, and certainly some of the inventiveness and uh, inspiration in Germany's memory culture remains just, you know, an incredible sort of thing. What, what um, Arendt, I'm sure, would have, uh, would have thought of as inventing something new, which to her was, was, uh, was the essence of politics. Um, but in the last decade, decade and a half, Um, I feel, and many people living in Germany, feel that this memory culture has, as the philosopher Susan Nyman said, gone uh, haywire. And it's become this political tool of silencing people, especially people who are critical of Israel, and in many cases, Jews and sometimes Israeli Jews living in Germany who are critical of Israel.
1: So... Now you say the way memory culture has been constructed there, it feels static and somehow an attempt to establish that only this memory is remembered, the memory of the Holocaust, and only in this way. Are you arguing against seeing the Holocaust as a singularly evil event in Germany's history? Um,
0: well, I am in the, in the footsteps of some great Jewish thinkers who survived the Holocaust, including Sigmund Bauman, arguing for seeing it as both singular and not singular but a, a function of, of of our of its historical moment and and I'll explain uh obviously the holocaust is uh is a horrific event and in some ways com- uh, stands completely apart from other things that humans have done to one another it is the it's not the largest genocide that ever happened, but it is the largest number of people killed over the shortest period of time. It's the only time so far when people have built factories to kill other people. In that sense, it's a function of its age, as as the philosopher Zygmunt Bauman uh, argued. Um, My argument is that when you place the Holocaust outside of history, specifically by forbidding any comparisons between the holocaust and contemporary events which is something that Germans call holocaust leveling or holocaust relativizing and some american jews call holocaust holocaust universalizing um, when you when you when you ban these kinds of comparisons you turn never again from a political project into something akin to a magic spell. You just kind of assume it's never going to happen again. When I think the point of never again is to keep comparing and to keep asking ourselves, are we seeing signs of something equally horrific or similarly horrific beginning to happen so that we can prevent it, so we can make good on the promise of never again?
1: And we should say, um, so people know exactly what got you in trouble here, the most offending reference was a comparison of Gaza to a Nazi-era Jewish ghetto. And you've said you thought that might be a trigger for a backlash there from your New Yorker article. Would you explain the comparison that you were making?
0: Yes. um, I've I've noticed, obviously, that um, for a long time, human rights organizations and politicians and generally people speaking about Gaza have used this metaphor of an open-air prison. And if you think about it, there's no such thing as an open-air prison, or at least I'm not aware of such a thing existing. Um, So uh, what I would tell my writing students is that that's not a great metaphor because it's not illuminating. It doesn't tell us what the phenomenon is. And when I thought about what might be a better... Uh, analogy, uh, I thought that a walled-in space, which is hyper densely populated, which is imposed by an occupying power uh, that doesn't have prison guards but does have a local force that that rules it, that in some ways is empowered by the occupying power, all of these things are actually most reminiscent of a ghetto in Nazi Jewish ghetto in Nazi occupied Europe, and even though or perhaps because that comparison is so shocking, I think it gives us language for understanding what's happening now. And my argument is that what's happening now is that the ghetto is being liquidated. And if you think about the similarities, uh, they're really chilling. The way that ghettos were liquidated in in Nazi-occupied Europe, and I spent a lot of my writing life studying this, is that a lot of the time ghettos would be compressed in space. So Jews would be told to go from a larger space that they occupy to a smaller space. The fence would literally be moved and often troops shooting indiscriminately would be running through the streets of the ghetto, uh, shooting people on site to force them into this smaller space. Um, Of course another uh, weapon, weapon of war that the Nazis used against Jews was starvation and disease. Uh, of the six million Jews who died in the Holocaust, 1.3 million died of starvation and disease. That is also exactly what we're seeing in Gaza. Human Rights Watch has already come out saying unequivocally that Israel is using starvation as a weapon of war. Um, it is also using disease. We're uh, hearing and seeing a lot of reports of people unable to get care. Yesterday I heard an absolutely chilling um, audio uh, of a conversation with a woman who, um, who, whose entire family was sick, who has been dislocated. You know, nine out of ten people in Gaza have been dislocated, uh, displaced at this point, and uh, who couldn't get medical care because they were uh, too weak to walk anywhere to seek medical care. And if that doesn't make you think of Jews in ghettos of, of the Holocaust, then I don't know what will.
1: Let me um, summarize some of the pushback. One difference you acknowledge is that Israel's justification for walling in Gaza stems from actual and repeated acts of violence, unlike the Nazis, who just ghettoized as pure acts of hate, the only aggressor in that equation. And so some defenders of Israel will argue that that difference is more defining than the way you apparently see it. They would say Israel tried to be done with Gaza more than 15 years ago, but Hamas, bent on the destruction of Israel, not just independence from it, kept drawing them in with rocket attacks that needed to be defended against, and culminating on October 7th with those atrocities And then embedding themselves among civilians to force Israel into this position of killing civilians as not a goal of Israel unto itself, like the Nazis liquidating the ghettos, but a necessary evil in order to actually get to the Hamas fighters to kill or disarm them. That's such a different set of circumstances, the argument goes. Then what the Nazis did to Jews and others as to make the comparisons you're trying to emphasize much less meaningful. How would you respond to that kind of critique?
0: There are obviously differences, and there's no such thing as a one-to-one comparison. Uh, my argument is that the, uh, the threat, that, uh, that the very real threat that emanates from Hamas does not justify or even begin to explain The collective immiseration that Israel has visited on people in Gaza. It also certainly does not explain why over the course of 17 years Israel prevented people from leaving Gaza. Uh, The the, the, uh, policy that gave rise to this very strange metaphor of an open-air prison was that Israel had a policy of not allowing travel in and out of Gaza and not issuing passports to people in Gaza and allowing them to to go abroad, so um, locking people in behind a wall uh, and creating this this hyperdensely populated Im- impoverished you know the poverty rates and unemployment rates in Gaza are among the highest in the world along with the population density does not explain uh, is is not explained by this threat of violence if you think about it it's the exact opposite. Of, what, of a rational response to violence.
1: The German project of memorializing the Holocaust as a central aspect of contemporary German practice and education, and even singularly so, which is part of your critique, is sometimes used as a model by progressives in this country who want the U.S. to do something similar with respect to this country's original sins of slavery and genocide against the Native Americans, Instead, we get Ron DeSantis and a so-called parents' rights movement trying to keep those histories watered down and to move on without a real truth and reconciliation process in this country. And the progressives say, look how Germany got it right. I'm curious to what extent you share that thinking.
0: I do share that thinking to a large extent because I, I still think that the variety of of uh, sort of in the intentionality rather of the memorialization uh, and the creation of memory culture in Germany is something truly extraordinary uh, it really is something that <clears throat> I think no um, people had done before uh, just trained this very clear eye on the duckers chapter of their past but the moment that something turns from uh, a set of ideas and and a, and a sort of a process of political engagement into an ideology. That's when things go off the rails. And I think that's what's happened in Germany. And, you know, let's just get into some specifics there, a little bit inside baseball, but I think that uh, we need them to understand what's really happening there. So one of the things that's happened, and it's also happening in this country, which is that an odd definition of anti-Semitism has been adopted and is being Instrumentalized, And it's a definition of anti-Semitism created by an organization called the International Holocaust Remembrance Association, which uh, is used to interpret critique of Israel and particularly any comparison, uh, any, any, uh, particularly any statements that call Israeli policies racist and any statements that uh, compare Israeli policies to Nazi policies. Uh, they are called a priori anti-Semitic, and Germany has created this vast bureaucracy of anti-anti-Semitism uh, commissioners, who um, who take down and defund and um, and otherwise silence people whom they see as being guilty of um, Holocaust relativization, Holocaust leveling, and what they call Israel-related anti-Semitism. Uh, the reason that I say it's happening in this country too is because actually the State Department has also adopted the IHRA definition of anti-Semitism. Uh, Congress just a couple of uh, just last week passed a non-binding resolution um, equating anti-Zionism with anti-Semitism, and um, these are these are all affronts to free speech, uh, and not great ways of fight, fighting anti-Semitism, and also ways of taking this memory culture that was a really generative political process and turning it into a political cudgel.
1: We're just about out of time. I want to get one thought from you on the other way you've been in the news this month. You're now not just a critic of Vladimir Putin, you're wanted by him, also for an alleged crime of speech, spreading what he claims are falsehoods about the Russian military, Um, you've been a leading critic of Putin on the world stage for years. Why do you think he took this creepy step now?
0: Right. So, yeah, I just got news from my lawyer that I'll be arrested in absentia on Monday. Um, What? What?
1: What what, what does that mean? Where are you?
0: I'm I'm in New York, but uh, a Moscow court is going to issue an arrest order. So, Right now, there's an arrest warrant, and now there's going to be an arrest order, and then they're going to try me in absentia. Um, I'm one of about 250 journalists uh, and activists, but I think primarily journalists, who are accused of, quote unquote, knowingly spreading false information about the Russian military. Uh, And this uh, this is a law that went into effect almost two years ago in the first week of Russia's full scale invasion of Ukraine. Uh, when they instituted uh, a set of laws aimed at silencing any potential protest and also aimed at driving out what remained of Russian independent media, uh, basically forcing the entire independent media community into exile because very clearly they would be risking arrest because anything anything that doesn't come directly from the Russian defense ministry uh can potentially be interpreted as either discrediting the russian armed forces which is a lesser crime or knowingly spreading false information about the russian armed forces which is the crime that i'm charged with which carries a potential penalty of more than 10 years in prison uh, and people who are not tried in absentia like i'm going to be and there are dozens of them are imprisoned in russia now and they've gotten terms of between seven and a half and and ten years so um the reason they're doing it now is because the political crackdown there is is intensifying. And there's this machine that works to uh, to terrorize people who are both inside and outside the country. And if you're wondering why they would go uh, against somebody who is living in exile, uh, it is partly to make our lives inconvenient because there's now there are now a lot of countries in the world that I can't travel to because they have extradition treaties. Uh, that they actually observe with Russia. <clears throat> it's actually probably most of the world. Uh, and the other thing is that um, because they've all, they also have teams of assassins uh, roaming in the European Union, there have been a number of incidents of poisonings of Russian journalists, particularly women journalists, living in exile in the last year. Um, it's also putting people who are living in exile on notice, basically saying, you know, we're going to get you somewhere. They're not going to arrest me. Um, but they want me to be scared of them
1: do you need to um, put security around yourself in a new way because of this
0: i I don't know how one protects oneself from uh you know from being poisoned in one's own home, which is what's happened to to these women in Europe. Uh, I'm hoping that I'm safer in new york but um uh but yeah it's not it's not you know uh, it's not something you can effectively protect yourself again, which is an old KGB tactic. Uh, they used to kill people abroad in the, in, the, in the 60s and 70s, and they continue to do it today.
1: Well, we're not going to solve Vladimir Putin today, and we're not going to solve Germany today, and we're certainly not going to solve the Middle East today as we continue to present a variety of points of view and have a hopefully open conversation as we listen. Also to Masha Gessen, Their article in The New Yorker that started all this in the shadow of the Holocaust in the December 9th edition. Thank you very much for joining us, Masha.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: Brian Lehrer, a daily politics podcast, is an excerpt from my live daily radio show, The Brian Lehrer Show, on WNYC Radio, 10 a.m. to noon Eastern Time, if you want to listen live at WNYC.org. Thanks for listening today.